All right, well, good morning. Uh, today, we are going to be starting something new. We are about to begin a month-long mini-series um, throughout the month of December, and uh, we're going to be doing something uh, a little bit uh, similar to what we've been already going through. And uh, Matthew, we've been going through so far, we just finished chapter 25, which talks about the end times. It talks about prophecies surrounding the second coming of Christ. And so in this series, <clears throat> we're going to be looking back to the first coming of Christ. And specifically, we're going to be looking at prophecies that were fulfilled during the first coming of Christ. And so uh, when you hear the word prophecy, it's a big word that can have different meanings. And I try to provide all the definitions that the Bible uses it for. Um, it can mean anything from to speak before, to speak on behalf of someone, to speak things before they actually happen. Essentially, prophecy in its most simplest form is just a prediction about future events. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, throughout this entire month, uh, about prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. And um, these prophecies that were given, they are predictions, uh, they were about future things, and typically God gave these prophecies to be spoken through by a prophet. God communicated his word to a prophet, and in turn, they spoke that word to the people of the time. And in order that the people could be sure that God had spoken to them through a prophet, God gave them these instructions in Deuteronomy 18. He says in Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, But the prophet who, speaks, uh, who, who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And so there was this um, command that if a, a prophet speaks falsely, you put them to death. This is a very serious thing that the words that God has spoken um, must come from him only, no one else. And if that person speaks something outside of what God has commanded, that person would be put to death. Uh, Deuteronomy continues by saying, And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so God built in this uh, safety net, if you will, uh, of allowing people to know that when a prophet is speaking, if they speak truthfully, that thing will come to pass. God's word will come to pass. But if it's not spoken by God's word, you'll clearly find out uh, very soon that that person who spoke those things is a liar and that they're not speaking on behalf of God based on the lack of fulfillment of their words. Um, another safety note, I just want to kind of give a general view or overview of what prophecy is and what it's like. Um, but another safety note that God provided is that typically a prophet uh, who, gives pro who spoke um, something prophetically would have a future, or would have a present or a near fulfillment, followed by a future application or, or latter uh, fulfillment. And the idea being that <clears throat> if the near or the immediate fulfillment comes to pass, then you would know for sure that the future one would also come to pass later on. Uh, for example, if you read through the book of Isaiah, uh, there's prophecies concerning Christ's suffering on this earth. And then just a chapter later, it talks about uh, him reigning, him ruling. And it almost seems like he's talking about it in the same breath. And yet we know that in Christ's first coming, he fulfilled that uh, description of him suffering, of him um, going to that cross for our sins. 
And so if Christ did that in the first coming, in that near fulfillment, we can trust in the future fulfillment, he will reign, he will come back to this earth as a righteous ruler. Um, and so based on that um, near fulfillment, we know that the future fulfillment of a, prophet, of a prophet will come to pass um, because it's what the Lord has spoken. Uh, we have to remember, too, that these prophets' words were not just a lucky guess. These were not just sometimes accurate, you know, or they're vague enough where it could fit multiple people for that um, prophecy. These are extremely specific, and these prophecies had multiple contingencies on them that could not just be easily uh, fit into a category of multiple people, meaning that you couldn't just have any one person say, uh, something so generic and so vague that any number of people could have claimed to fulfill that prophecy. It was always very detailed and very specific. Uh, recently, I, uh, I was just thinking in my own life, my two sisters announced their pregnancies, and they didn't tell us the gender right away, and so it left us in our minds while we waited for their announcement of, it was a boy or a girl, uh, we had some predictions. We made guesses of, you know, are they going to have boys? Is that going to be a girl? And to my surprise, I was actually able to guess both of them right before they made their official announcement. But statistically, that's not a very hard thing to do. Um, I had a 50-50 chance of getting each one right. And if I had two different people, that's a 25% chance that I would get both of them right. Um, it, for me, that's nothing more than just pure guesswork. It's pure luck. Um, and there have been other people who have been uh, you know, lucky enough to look at the events occurring around them, uh, they'll look at the indicators around them and they can guess maybe a, star, a stock market crash or they can predict maybe who will win an election or they can predict maybe uh, the next storm coming. And these are nothing more than just looking at what we currently can see today and estimating based on the current situation what will happen in the future. Um, but really for those people who are able to predict a housing market crash or a stock market crash, there's really no consistency with what they say. They may get it right one time, but maybe they made 10 other predictions that didn't come to pass. Um, and usually their predictions are pretty vague where they said maybe in the next year or two this will happen. Uh, they're never really uh, down to the minute detail and able to say specifically down to a day or down to a specific, um, specific uh, characteristic of what will occur during that time. And so, those are the predictions that we can make in our lifetime, but these are not the kind of predictions we're talking about here. The, pr the prophecies that are given here, the predictions about the future, these are things that could not be known to man unless God first revealed it to them. No one could have made an educated guess or a prediction on these things by just assessing the current situation. God spoke to various prophets and made specific enough details with multiple factors that for it to align... It would, it would be impossible for anyone to know. And I believe the reason God did that is for him to build in a self-validating system where there would be undeniable proof. When a prophecy comes to pass, it would be undeniable uh, that there is divine inspiration and authorship of the Bible, that God clearly spoke these things and that this Bible is validating itself through the ways that it speaks these things and years later it comes to pass. And in doing that, in validating itself through prophecy, God proves that he is omniscient, that he knows all things. 
Uh, God says in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God is saying, there is no one like me. I can tell you while we are currently here at the beginning of time what will take place thousands of years from now. I can tell you while we're in the ancient times what will happen at the end of time. No person can tell you those things. No one can accurately predict the future to the precision and detail that God can. Only an omniscient God can do that. It's been estimated that in the Bible there is over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah. Some of these prophecies predict uh, how he'll come into the world. Some of them talk about the names he'll be given. Some talk about specific things surrounding his birth. Some speak about his earthly ministry and what he's going to accomplish while he's on this earth. Others give very specific details about his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, Those are just some of the major highlights of the 400-plus prophecies concerning Jesus Christ on his uh, first coming. But today, we are going to be looking at specifically the prophecies that pertain to Christ's ministry while on this earth. So today, we're looking at prophecies that pertain to Christ's ministry while on the earth. And I, I, we're going to be flipping back and forth to a lot of passages, so try and stay with me if you can. But uh, I want to treat this kind of like a classroom setting where we kind of just open our Bibles and we just look at um, the different things that God has provided to prove uh, that he is all-knowing, that he is faithful, uh, and that he knows all things. And so one of the first prophecies that I thought of uh, concerning Christ's earthly ministry is found in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 2 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, this prophecy, while it doesn't look like much, uh, is actually claiming that the future Messiah will be preceded by a forerunner, that someone is going to come before Christ and prepare the way for him. Someone who would make ready the hearts of men to accept Christ as their Messiah. And 700 years later, we see this prophecy come to pass with John the Baptist. Uh, In John 1, when he is asked by the religious leaders, they say, you know, who are you? Are you you Elijah? Are you coming in, uh, you know, what are you? He says, and he quotes from uh, Isaiah, he says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, this, as the prophet Isaiah said, that, that to me is it's incredible to see that God promised something 700 years before. And here you have the person now there in place as the forerunner. And he quotes from that very passage reminding the people that, remember how God said that would happen? Here I am. I'm, I'm here to do that very thing. That's my life purpose, to be that forerunner for Christ. And that's an incredible fulfillment of prophecy to me. And it highlights that God is all-knowing. Who else could predict something like that? That they would have a forerunner before him. Another one I I want to look at, um, and to me, I think, regardless of any other prophecy we look at, this one probably to me is the most incredible. Um, And it's fulfilled, uh, or it's spoken of initially in Isaiah 53, 9. In the second half of the verse, when it talks about the coming Messiah and what he would be like, it says in the second half, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And as I think about that second half of that verse, I think, who else in this world could make that assertion? Who else could claim um, to be that, to be without sin, 
This person who is claiming to be the Christ one day would have to have never lied. They could have never acted out in violence. They could have never done anything wrong. They would have to be sinless and perfect. You know, and I've, I've traveled to different places. I've explored different cultures. I've met different people. Um, I meet a lot of different people at the hospital. And yet I've never met someone who fits this qualification. I've never met someone who can say that they've done no violence. They've never spoken anything deceitfully. And the fact is that we are all humans. We are sinners as humans. And the Bible even says it here very plainly uh, in Romans. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so based on this prophecy, the coming Messiah would have to be perfect, even though in this world, from before he came all the way up to uh, the beginning of time, there had no one who would ever fit that category, who would never fit that standard. And yet 700 years later, after this was prophesied, Jesus came into this world and fulfilled this very prophecy. 1 John 3 describes him saying, And you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared so that he might take away sin, and in him there is no sin. 1 Peter expresses the same thought saying, Jesus is the one who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And to me, that, that's just astonishing that Jesus Christ is sinless, he is perfect, there is no record of any wrong he ever did. Even when he was falsely accused and he stood before the rulers of this world, Pilate said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Even a sinful man realized that he was standing before someone who was sinless. And it just speaks again to the character, the flawless character of God, that he is perfect and that he is all-knowing. I want to look at another prophecy in Isaiah 35, uh, this one is very interesting to me as well. Isaiah 35, verse 5 reads, and, and this is pertaining to the ministry that Christ will fulfill while on this earth. What will he do? What will be a characteristic of um, the things he does on this earth? It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. Isaiah again predicted this 700 years in advance. Uh, that the Messiah would not only be preceded by a forerunner, that he would not only be sinless, but also that his ministry would be marked by miracles. And that those who had infirmities would regain normal function of those disabled body parts. When John is, uh, when he was um, discouraged in jail, he sent out his disciples to ask Jesus if he indeed was the coming Messiah. And Jesus responds to him in Matthew 11, saying, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And if you look all throughout, I don't have time to go through all of it, but if you look all throughout the gospels, you will see that this prophecy is being fulfilled time and time again. There is at least two mentions of blind men regaining their sight. And I'm sure there is more we know that Jesus healed a man who was lowered down from the roof, who was paralyzed from the neck down, and he commanded him to just pick up his bed and walk. This man, who had moments before no strength in his legs, no strength in his arms or his stomach or his back, suddenly, upon hearing the words of Jesus, is able to pick up his, body, pick up his bed and walk with enough strength to continue on doing something. No amount of physical therapy or anything like that could ever transition a person that quickly from paralysis back to normal functioning again. 
And yet, it demonstrates the tremendous power that God has. This is nothing short of a miracle. No man could command such a thing and expect to see the same results. But God just speaks and a miracle occurs. That to me, and it just displays tremendous power over a disease process. He displays it again when the deaf, with the deaf, the deaf can hear, the mute speak. Uh, Matthew also added here too that he not only had power over disease process, but over death itself. It says that he, it talks about uh, later in Matthew that he raises Lazarus to life. Uh, in the hospital, sometimes people say that we, uh, you know, when we have a person who codes, people say, oh, you brought him back to life after his heart stopped for a minute or two. Um, but, you know, really, if you think about it, we don't really bring people back to life. Um, we give them medications, we'll shock the heart, um, we may do chest compressions, but that's only if we catch it within a minute or two of it happening. And even then, we only have a, a chance of bringing them back. There's not really a guarantee that they'll actually come back. We're not miracle workers, we just have the equipment there, we have the training. But I looked at the statistics, and it's, pretty, it's actually pretty sad. Um, even with the best CPR done, with catching it right away, we have about a 10% chance of that person actually discharging home after CPR. Uh, we do our best, but again, we cannot predict, we cannot help a person if their body is not responding to the treatment. In the case of Lazarus, there was no equipment, there was no skilled people around to bring him back. There was no hospital nearby with staff. This man was inside a tomb for four days. His body was decaying, the stench was horrendous. There was no doctor who could fix this man. There was no hope in bringing him back. His heart was stopped for four days. And yet we read, just very casually in, uh, in Matthew, Jesus saying to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. He is speaking to a dead man. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And when he had said those words, he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. That to me is a supernatural display of power by God. God is demonstrating that he is all-powerful and he is fulfilling a prophecy spoken about him 700 years prior, that his ministry would be marked by miraculous signs. Despite, though, all these miracles, despite all his claims to be the promised Messiah, despite him fulfilling these prophecies already with being sinless, having a forerunner, displaying these miracles, it's interesting that people actually refused and rejected him. Uh, he spoke plainly to them, and yet they would not understand him. He spoke very simply to them, telling them what they needed to hear, and yet they didn't want to hear it. And so, in light of their rejection, um, he begins speaking to them in parables. And yet, um, this was actually predicted, that he would speak in parables. If you look back in Psalm in Isaiah, in Isaiah Psalm says, I will open up my mouth in a parable. Isaiah says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And so, through the divine inspiration of God, Isaiah is actually able to predict that the Messiah will speak and his words are going to fall on deaf ears. That he is going to say things, but they will not understand. And the fulfillment of this prophecy is seen in Matthew 13. Jesus, again, is speaking in parables, and his disciples say, why are you doing that? Why are you speaking to them in these parables? 
And he says to them in Matthew 13, 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the heart of these people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and, he and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. Once again, God accurately predicts 700 years in advance that there is going to be a rejection of these people to his teachings. And so, because they have closed off their ears to his word, he has therefore shut off their eyes to his obvious miracles. And because they have hardened their hearts, God will no longer speak to them openly. He will continue to use parables and they will not understand. The phrase that I like the most, though, about this whole passage is back in verse 14 of Matthew 13. It says, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. This, again, is God validating his word. I don't know of any other book that's like this, where God has built in this self-validation process, where he says, I've said this back here. Look again, I'm reminding you. Remember how I said it back 700 years ago? Here is the fulfillment. And God is, again, proving to his reader, letting him know that his promises are true. His promises will come to pass. He is faithful to, to do what he has said he will do. It's just, it's really, you'll see it not just, I mean, there's so many more I, I could have chosen from with prophecies, but you'll see it time and time again, thus fulfilling the prophecies said of this person. And it's just very interesting as you read the Bible. You'll see time and time again, God is reminding the reader that his word is true. Another one that we can look at, it's very specific, this one too. So this one is, for those who say, you know, prophecy is vague sometimes, or it could be vague, this one is very specific. Uh, if you look at Zechariah 9, 9, um, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy uh, was spoken about 600 years prior to this occurring in Matthew 21, where we see the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Um, he starts out um, Matthew 21, verse 1, saying, Now when he drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey, a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy is so detailed, down to the animal that will be used. And even as Jesus is commanding his disciples to go get the donkey, he tells you, Okay, it's going to be there, you'll go get that. And then if they ask you questions, this is what you'll say in return. And he already knows ahead of time what's going to be asked of them. He already knows where it's all going to be. It, it's just, no one else can predict such things except God. No one else can know such things unless they were God. It's just, it's so interesting to me to, to read these things and seeing God predicting and then coming to pass. And <clears throat> because of those predictions and because of its coming to pass, there is this guarantee of his word that there is just no uncertainty with him, that we know whatever he says will come true. God is faithful. 
And you can just praise the Lord that time and time again, he is fulfilling his prophecy. He is proving himself to be the exact, exact description that the Bible details of what the coming Messiah will be like. Right after this, though, uh, right after the, the crowds have this triumphal entry, after they sing Hosanna in the highest, after they're praising the Lord, um, there's another prophecy that's very shortly after that fulfilled concerning his ministry. And this is the last one I'm going to look at. Um, and it concerns his betrayal. This one, uh, to me, actually, is the most specific of anyone that I could find. Um, <clears throat> we read about this betrayal first in Psalm 41, verse 9, where, where David actually prophetically speaks of the betrayal that the Messiah would endure. He says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And as we know, Judas was that familiar friend, one of his own disciples, one of the twelve, who ate bread with him. And on the night of the betrayal, Jesus, being aware of his decision, being aware of his uh, intent to betray him, says in John 13, 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. This was a direct fulfillment of the scripture seen back in Psalm that Jesus said would occur. And someone say, well, you know, maybe someone could have guessed that. Maybe someone would have known that a close friend could have betrayed him. It's possible someone could predict something like that. But the Bible takes it a step further in order to validate what it's saying. The Bible not only just tells you that one person close to him will betray him, they then say this is the price set for his betrayal. We, we read about this uh, set price in Zechariah, that it would be 30 pieces of silver. And we see that fulfillment of 30 pieces of silver in Matthew 26, where it says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought out the opportunity to betray him. To me, that is, the precision of that is so incredible. And yet the Bible, again, pushes it even farther to, uh, to remove any doubt from the reader that these are divinely appointed things, that these are divinely known things before it could ever have been known by man. He not only just tells that he will be betrayed by a close friend, the price that will be paid for his betrayal, but then gives an encounter and tells us what the money will be used for after his betrayal. It tells us in Jeremiah that the betrayal money would be used to buy a potter's field. And in Matthew 27, it tells us that after Jesus hung himself, he threw, uh, before he hung himself, he threw the money into a temple. And after hanging himself, the pieces were gathered by the chief priest, and that money was used to buy exactly what God had predicted, a potter's field. Matthew 27 says, Then it was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver valued of him who was priced, whom, they had, whom the children of Israel priced, and gave them for a potter's field, as the Lord directed me. These are, these are unknowable things. These are things that no one else could claim to know based on how detailed and specific they are. But the accuracy and precision that we see them fulfilled is remarkable. There is no amount of guesswork or luck that could have predicted down to exactly who would have done it, down to how much he would be paid, and then what the money would be used for after. That's only God can know that. Apart from divine knowledge of the future, these things could not be known. And again, God is just fulfilling his promises. 
time and time again. I mentioned earlier that there's over 400 prophecies concerning the Messiah, but I just want to wrap your mind around the odds of these things happening. Let's just say, for, for argument's sake, let's just pretend that Jesus only fulfilled eight of these prophecies, eight of the 400 plus prophecies. The odds of any one person fulfilling one or eight of these 400 prophecies from any person on, on the face of the earth from beginning of time until now would be one in a hundred quadrillion. That is one followed by 17 zeros. And to give you an idea of how unlikely it would be for anyone to fulfill just eight of these prophecies, I want you to imagine that all seven continents of the world, uh, including the islands and all that, all the landmass that we have, covered by these black tiles. This tile is about one and a half inches square. This black tile covers all the face of the earth on all seven continents. You give a person their only life goal in life is to take flights, ferries, they can take any transportation they want. Their entire life goal is to walk across all these black tiles and whenever they feel fit, they can stoop down and pick up just one of these black tiles. Only one of these black tiles is marked with a red circle on the back. And at any point, the odds of them throughout their entire lifetime wandering this earth and picking up that one red tile is the same odds as any one person in the history of mankind fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. And we know that there are over 400 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And as we look at these passages, as we look at the Bible's built-in validation for itself, I've, I've said it time and time again, but God is reminding the reader of his validity that what he says will come to pass. And, um, you know, if you see that God has fulfilled these prophecies concerning his first coming, and he's proven himself faithful there in that near fulfillment, we can trust that his future fulfillments will come to pass. And if we can trust him for that, we can also trust him for the promises that he gives to us as believers. He has provided so many promises, and I want us to just look at that, because that's really what we can take away from this is that his word is faithful and true to the promises that he's made. And one of the biggest promises that he's given to us as believers, uh, first of all, is concerning salvation. Romans 9, 9 through 11 says that if you confess your sins with your mouth, the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So when it comes to salvation, there is a, a guarantee with that, that if you trust in the Lord, you will be saved. But there's also a promise and a guarantee that we also cannot lose our salvation. John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Your salvation is secure. It is, um, cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be revoked. Once a person is saved, they are forever secure, and no one is able to snatch you out of the hand of the Father. Elsewhere in Romans, it says that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
But more than just salvation, God is also interested in your day-to-day life. You know, he knows that we have concerns. He knows that we have troubles. He knows that we will go through trials and tribulations. He knows that there are issues in our life. And Peter tells us that we are able to cast all our cares upon him. That is the Lord, for he cares for you. He is acquainted with all of our issues that are happening in our lives. And God says to us, bring them before me. I love you. I deeply care for every issue. Cast your cares upon me. Well, you might say, well, my problems are bigger than that. My problems are that I can't even keep food on the table. I don't know how I'm going to get through this month's mortgage. I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford this or that. I don't know how my future is going to play out. And God responds to these worries, these, these frettings that we have. And he says, you see those small birds? You see that grass on the field? You see those lilies over there? You see those little small things that most people overlook and forget about? And you say, yeah, well, what about those? He says, well, I provide for them. I take care of them. And if I take care of those things, and you are of, of, so, and you are of so much more value, how will I not also provide for your needs? He says in Matthew 6, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. So if God has created us, if God has brought us into this world, he is saying that, He's promising us that if I have brought you into this world, if I have made it up to this point, that you don't need to worry about the future because I am going to sustain you day by day. All of your basic needs are going to be met. Your food, your clothing, a roof over your head. I will provide for you. And we can trust him for that. Just the final promise that he gives us. In a world full of chaos and uncertainty, Jesus promises us peace. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus Christ gives believers a peace that money cannot buy, a peace that the world cannot offer. And that peace is knowing that Christ has pardoned our sins, that he has reconciled us to God, all of which because he came obediently, and because he died for you and I, on the cross. We have this forever peace knowing that no matter what happens in life, our eternity is secure, that we will forever be with the Lord. And as believers, that is a tremendous promise from God. There are so many other promises I can go through, but the point being that if God is so diligent in the Old Testament, prophesying and then fulfilling with the coming of Christ, then He is reliable then we can trust that he is faithful, that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful. And if he is all those things, if he is faithful at keeping his word, then how much more can we trust him for the other promises that he provides for us? How much more can we trust him with our lives, with our futures? He promises us real peace. He promises to care for us. He promises us security with salvation. All those things come from God, and we can trust him because his word has shown itself to be true. What a wonderful and faithful God we serve. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you that we can look through your word and we can see time and time again you validating yourself, you proving yourself to be truthful, you displaying tremendous knowledge of the future before it happens. 
Lord, we're just so thankful that you brought your son into this world to die for sinners like, like myself and like everyone else in this room. Lord, we're just grateful for the fact that we not only have the offer of salvation, but we have promises from you that you'll care for us, that you'll provide for our needs, that you will give us peace, Lord. Lord, we're just so thankful for those things, and we just pray that we would just live in light of those promises today. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.